0: As the uh, kids are leaving, as we were singing that song, God of All My Days, and especially on the, uh, the portions where um, our weakness, our imperfections, our sins were being highlighted, and yet God remains the God of all our days. There's a, a statement, phenomenal statement, in Malachi, uh, the last book of the Old Testament. In chapter 3, verse 6, where, uh, where God says, "'For I, the Lord, do not change.'" Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's immutability, the fact that he never changes, is one of the best anchors and assurances to weak, mixed-up, misguided people like us that he will not just snuff us out, as he could so easily do. Having said that, we come to Genesis chapter 20. Speaking of weak, misguided people, this is one of the low points in Abraham's life, but a passage that still provides a tremendous amount of encouragement, especially for those who easily and readily identify with Abraham in this episode. So follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the, land of the Negev, uh, toward the land of the Negev. Boy, that's not good when the first line out, you're already fumbling and stumbling. Let's try that again. Verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he sojourned in Gerar. "'Abraham said of Sarah his wife, "'She is my sister.' "'So Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. "'But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night "'and said to him, "'Behold, you are a dead man "'because of the woman whom you have taken, "'for she is married.' "'Now Abimelech had not come near her, "'and he said, "'Lord, will you slay a nation "'even though blameless?' "'Did he not himself say to me, "'She is my sister?' "'And she herself said, "'He is my brother?' In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live." But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, "'What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and all my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done.' And Abimelech said to Abraham, what have you encountered that you have done this thing? Abraham said, because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. To Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother, probably a little dig there, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are kind and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness and truth. Help us to see, Father, that our security with you does not ultimately depend on our performance, but it depends wholly on your promise. And it depends on the finished work, the performance of Christ on our behalf. Thank you. For this section of scripture and for what it is that you intend to communicate to us. Give us ears to hear now and eyes to see all that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So God protects his people and his promise. One of the things that we ought to consider is that in chapter 20, the issue, at least on the surface, appears to be what God is doing in a unique, even dramatic way... To protect Sarah from being made the wife of another man and being taken from Abraham. In that sense, both Abraham and Sarah, their marriage together is being protected. But ultimately, or we would say along with that, what's being protected is God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, namely that through Sarah, God would give Abraham a son, an heir, through whom all of his other descendants, would derive. So one of the ways to think about Genesis chapter 20, even if, you, even if you're tempted like me to sort of get lost in the details or to sort of go off on a rabbit trail or something like that, uh, Derek Kidner, little commentary on Genesis, sums Genesis 20 up beautifully and succinctly when he says this. On the brink of Isaac's birth story, so if you're looking at your Bible, you see what the very next chapter is, chapter 21, you have a little heading in your chapter. What does it say? Sarah gives birth to Isaac or Isaac is born or something like that. So we, we are, we are, this is the chapter before God is going to dramatically fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah where a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are going to give birth to a son. On the, on the, on the brink of Isaac's birth story, Here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. Kidner goes on to say, If it is ever to be fulfilled, it will owe very little to man. Morally as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. One of the things, at least in in my mind, as I've been thinking about this passage in the run-up to this morning... One of the things that makes this passage so striking is to consider how close Abraham and Sarah were to the fulfillment of the promise, and yet how close they also came to wrecking everything. They are at the 11th hour. In chapter 18, God has visited with Abraham and Sarah. And he has told them explicitly not only that Sarah would be the one to conceive and have a child, but he gave them even a time frame. At this time next year, I will visit you again, and Sarah will give birth to a son. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between that statement in chapter 18 and these events that we read about in chapter 20, but bare minimum, we have to say it's within one year's time because Isaac hasn't been born until chapter 21. Abraham has been walking with the Lord for almost 25 years, and he is on the cusp of getting what it is that he is longing for, and he almost wrecks it. Here's why we need a passage like this. Because the truth of the matter is that just like Abraham, we have promises that God has made and given to us. Just like Abraham, God says, I will make good on my promises to you. You, Genesis 17, walk before me and be blameless. You walk in faith and obedience. If God's word, God's promise to me, God's promises to you, depend on my ability, my obedience, my perfection, I have no reason to believe that I will get anything that the Lord has offered me. Because I'm just like Abraham. I can be told if this if this whole promise fulfillment program that God has for his people, if it were based on a on a works driven perspective well, you have to do X amount, or you better make sure you don't do such and such that's going to forfeit the promise. If it were to depend on that, even if God appeared to us today and said, you have three months until you enter into glory, how many times do you think you could blow it in the course of three months? What if, instead of three months, He said three weeks, You hold on for three weeks, and all that you've been waiting for, your faith is going to become sight. Three weeks. Can you do three weeks? Can you do three days? Three hours? Three minutes? (laughs) Seconds? Well, can I be sleeping in those three seconds, right? you you get the idea, right? This, This is a reminder that God's people are never secure because of their obedience, because of their faith. We are secure because God is kind and gracious. We are secure in the promises of God because Jesus has already bought them for us. We are secure in the promises of God because the Holy Spirit seals us and keeps us in this life of faith to guarantee that we will make it to the end, even if that means we have to be drug across the finish line. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at, look at this passage in, uh, in three steps. One, I want to look at God's gracious protection of course, of Abraham and Sarah, ultimately hit the protection of his promise. God's gracious protection, that's in verses 1 through 7. Second, we want to take a look at Abraham's shameful weakness. And let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. It is embarrassing. God's gracious protection, Abraham's shameful weakness, and then last, Abimelech's restoration. So, God's gracious protection. This is the first place in Scripture where God miraculously gives divine revelation to someone outside of His promise bearers or His chosen people. Abimelech is not attached to Abraham. Abimelech is not a recipient of God's blessings through the promise. Abimelech, for all intents and purposes, is just another pagan living in the land of Canaan, and yet Abimelech is the first person outside of God's saving graces to get direct divine revelation. Why? The revelation that Abimelech gets is not ultimately for Abimelech. It's driven first and foremost for Abraham. Abimelech needs it, but the reason that Abimelech needs it is so that Abimelech does not do something, even in ignorance, that is going to harm Abraham and Sarah and jeopardize God's promise. So in protecting Abraham and Sarah, the first thing that we see is that he miraculously delivers divine revelation to a pagan king and notice no no soft peddling no slow introduction a nice little build-up verse four or I'm sorry not verse four verse three God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him behold you're a dead man because of the woman that you've taken that will get your attention God makes it abundantly clear, Abimelech you cannot do this and expect to live. So he intervenes miraculously, gives Abimelech a vision, tells him that he is as good as dead if he touches Sarah. The second thing that we see by way of God's protection to keep Abraham and Sarah intact and the promise secure is that when Abimelech appeals to God and says, listen, I didn't have any idea. I, this was, I was, I'm totally innocent as far as there was no ill intent involved here, and I have not touched her." What does God say in response? Verse 6, "'Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I kept you from sinning against me.'" Do you hear that? In other words, the reason that Abimelech did not touch Sarah, did not take Sarah as his wife, was because God had kept Abimelech from doing it. Not that Abimelech would not do it, but he could not do it. God intervened in such a way that he kept a pagan ruler from sinning so that his people could be kept safe. You would have sinned, you would have done this, I did not let that happen. And then third, we find out at the end of the passage that apparently one of the ways or one of the things that has sort of put life on hold or interrupted things so that Sarah is not touched, so that things are thrown into confusion is that the Lord had closed the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's household. As if to say, you're going to threaten Abraham and Sarah's seed, I'll threaten your seed. You run the risk of jeopardizing a miraculous conception. You will get in the way, you will send, nope, that's not going to happen. I will keep you from flourishing so that my people will flourish. Do you you see what's going on here? God has, in dramatic ways, stepped in to protect Abraham and Sarah, even though Abraham and Sarah, or Abraham at the very least, does not really deserve protection. Now, one of the other interesting things about the way that this passage is laid out is that we're given God's intervention up front before we hear what was going on in Abraham's mind, right? It's, it's after God has confronted Abimelech in the dream that Abimelech goes and tells the, his servants and his, uh, the people in his administration what's going on. They're all terrified. And then Abimelech goes and says, Abraham, what in the world? God told me that, why have you done this? And then we get to, to see why Abraham did this, that he was fearful, that he thought that his life was in jeopardy, right? Here's here's one of the ways that, I think one of the reasons why we have the order this way, that we're not told about the interaction between Abraham and Sarah first, Abimelech takes her and then we get God's intervention, but we're told up front, about God's intervention. One of the things that happens is because we are so thoroughly convinced that there was no possible way for Sarah to be harmed, it shines a brighter light on Abraham's fear and doubt and makes it look even more pitiful, right? You read this, what God has done, the links that God has gone to even to the point of making it impossible for a sinner to sin and you say well there's no way that sarah was in any danger abraham was under no threat what was he thinking you recognize that that this very easily is also sort of the paradigm or the pattern that fits on our life as well, right? Right? We have a book filled with God's promises of security and safety, of the assurance that He orders our steps, of the assurance that even the heart of a king is like a channel of water, that he turns wherever he wants. That even in our suffering and affliction, all of these things are working together for our good. And yet, what do we do when we experience threat or doubt or fear? We frantically rush to find a way to keep ourselves safe. We compromise our faith. We hedge. We lie. We distract. We misdirect. You think if someone took your life story and said, look at the way that merit fails in this instance. He was insecure or he feared this or that, and so he sinned this way. You think if someone took that episode of my life and took all of God's promises, laid it as a grid over that, you think my sin and doubt and fear would look embarrassingly pitiful? You think your sin and doubt, in light of the promises of God, in light of his omnipotent power and his all-knowing wisdom, you think your sin and weakness and fear and doubt, you think it looks embarrassingly pitiful? It does. And yet God still protects you. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, we need to say up front, this is... On the one hand, we want to read in Genesis 20, and we want to see that God is faithful. We want to see that God is strong, that He is able to secure and protect, even in miraculous ways, His people, to see to it that they are not touched and that His promise remains intact. And we want to say with confidence that the God who did that in Genesis 20 is the God that we still worship and serve. Therefore, God can do anything that he wants, anything that is necessary and necessary to keep his people and to preserve his promises for us. We, we want to say that. We want to affirm that, okay? But here's the thing. Be careful, be careful, be careful, That you don't take an episode like this in Scripture and that you then make all of your theology about God's providential care of you built on this one passage. As if to say, the way that I know that God is with me, the way that I know that God is for me, is when He keeps me from harm. What about when you do encounter harm? Is God not with you then? Now you're starting to break out into a sweat. I'm like, holy cow. Let me tell you about some of the harm and some of the hard times that I've hit on. I, I hope that doesn't mean God. Hold your place here and go to First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, start at verse 10. We're going to read verses 10 through 15. Peter says, quoting from the Old Testament, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See, so already we're, that would be a good verse for Abraham to know. Came much later. Abraham, you don't have to lie. You don't have to deceive. God is going to bless you with good days if you just speak the truth. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So far, so good, right? Okay. I'll I'll be truthful if I have this ironclad guarantee that I'm not going to hit any kind of difficulty or suffering or affliction. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But then... Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Here's the difficulty. The reason that Abraham and Sarah do not suffer, the reason that they are miraculously protected along with the promise, is because that was what was according to God's will. It is also according to God's will from time to time that his people suffer, that they are threatened that even when they speak the truth and do not give deceitful answers, they will suffer for it. If we are living out the kind of righteousness that God has given to us following the path that He has laid out, it may be that God's will is to miraculously preserve and keep you from certain dangers. And we could all give instances in our life where we can say, that certainly happened. But it is also equally true that as you walk the path of righteousness, following where God leads, pursuing righteousness, that it will also be God's will not to keep you from suffering. So Peter says later in that same letter let all those who suffer according to the will of God entrust themselves to a faithful creator to do what is right. Abraham should have had confidence enough to know that God would keep him and God would protect him. That God was able to miraculously preserve Sarah that he would have to do that if he was to give them together a child within a year's time. Abraham did not have to think up of an elaborate path out of danger. All he had to do was merely speak the truth. Christians understand... That is the same thing that God calls us to as well. You you recognize, especially as you look at the culture and society around us, that it is becoming increasingly difficult to live the Christian faith. Right? What are you going to do... When you're Abimelech, when you're governor, when you're president, when your representative comes to you and puts you on the spot, are you this kind of person? Do you lie for safety? Do you compromise your faith? Or do you say no? Here's the truth. I'm not going to be deceitful. This is the path that God has laid out for me. And now it is up to God in his will and his providential care of me to determine, will he protect me or will he bring me through this suffering? We we are, if things continue on the, the current trend or trajectory, and I'm not making any predictions, right? I'm not a prognosticator by any means. But understand... That for Christians in an increasingly hostile society, you will not have the luxury of trying to split the difference between what is convenient and what is inconvenient. It will all be inconvenient truth. The time to convince yourself that God is sovereign, that God rules and reigns over earthly powers and authorities just as He does over heavenly authorities. The time to convince yourself of that is now so that when your threat comes, you don't have to scramble and think, what will I say? Parents and grandparents, you need to be teaching your kids this. You need to be preparing them for the fact That if they choose to follow Christ, it will bring them into conflict with the world around them. What will they do? What will they say? So we move to Abraham then. Right up front in the passage, we see that God is graciously protecting Abraham and Sarah by miraculous means. Abraham has nothing to fear... If he had known that this is what God was prepared to do, that these are the links that God would go to, Abraham has nothing to fear. And that makes Abraham's failure and his weaselly little answers and explanations to Abimelech all the more pitiful and shameful. It starts off with this pagan king going to Abraham and more or less calling Abraham out for his unrighteous sinful behavior and his deceitfulness, that would be like a politician coming and rebuking you as a Christian for not telling the truth. That's not the way it ought to work, but that's how low we are in this particular event and circumstance that Abimelech is correcting Abraham. And Abraham gives this mealy mouth explanation for what it is that he's done well I was afraid I didn't think that there was any fear of God in this place so as justification I sort of put my fear of God to the side so that I could play on you know the same field and by the way I didn't actually lie to you she really is my sister she's my half-sister I just didn't happen to tell you that we were married so I didn't really lie to you It's pitiful, it's pathetic. We are not prepared to have this kind of a portrayal of Abraham in Genesis chapter 20 on the cusp of promise fulfillment. Abraham by faith has defeated kings in battle. Abraham by faith has taken on acts of obedience To his own pain, at the very least, when he took on the sign of circumcision. Abraham, by faith, has interceded with God on Lot's behalf to save him from destruction and was effective in keeping Lot safe and secure. All of this has happened. We are now almost at year 25 and Abraham fails miserably in this shameful pathetic way and let's add insult to injury one of the things that makes this failure so embarrassing is that this is not the first time that Abraham has failed this way remember Genesis chapter 12 Abraham enters into the land there's a famine in the land sometime later they go to Egypt Abraham does the exact same thing almost loses Sarah in the process. God has to dramatically intervene and restore Sarah to Abraham. He's already tried this once before. He already knows that he doesn't need to do this, but he does it again. And apparently this is not just a once or twice kind of a thing. This this may be the only two events that are actually recorded for us because as Abraham says, when we were entering into the land, I told Sarah, "Wherever we go, you tell them that you're my sister." So it may well be that Abraham is going through these chapters in Genesis chapters 12 through 20 and frequently giving this line to people, "Hi, my name's Abraham. This is my sister Sarah." Isn't that pathetic? Sinning the same way over and over and over again. Isn't that pathetic? Having God demonstrate his power and his faithfulness and yet failing in the same miserable way. How pathetic. Right? You're saying easy merit. Truth be told, I fail in the same way over and over and over again. In the exact same test of my faith, I fail in the exact same ways. Even though I have seen before that God is faithful and that God is able to protect and provide, I do this same thing. Go easy on Abraham. This is why we need Genesis 20. Because the truth of the matter is, we're all Abrahams. We're all Sarahs. We are not kept safe. We are not preserved. We are not held fast because of our faithfulness. We are held fast in spite of our faithfulness. Part of this, though, goes to one of these timeless, never-ending questions in the Christian life. Why why would God even allow this to happen? When God is talking with Abimelech, God says, I kept you from sinning against me. God kept a pagan king from sinning. If God can do that with a pagan king, can't he do that with Abraham? Abraham. Why doesn't he? Or, to make the question more personal, if God can keep a pagan king like Abimelech from sinning, couldn't he keep you from sinning? Couldn't he keep me from sinning? Why does he allow us to continue to fail over and over and over again, sometimes in the most pitiful, pathetic ways? Why can't he just take this from us? If God is able to keep people from sinning, if God hates and despises sin and yet loves his children, is it possible that his hatred of sin and his love for his children ought to clue us into the idea that even in our battles with sin, there is some good reason that God allows it to continue? Right, this is very uncomfortable, I understand, we're treading on very dangerous ground, we're about to go into the realm of heresy, but we're not. What we're saying is that God could have kept Abraham from sinning just as he kept Abimelech from sinning, but he didn't. Why didn't he? And by extension, why doesn't he keep any of us from sinning if he could do that? Wouldn't that be so much easier? And I think one of the things that we have to come to grips with is that God rules over his people with such providential care, with such grace and mercy, that even our indwelling sin, the battles that we face day in and day out, even those things, he is overruling for our good. So, Peter, in the book of Luke, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. What does Jesus say? But I'm not going to let that happen? But I've prayed for you, Peter, so that when your faith is restored, you would go strengthen your brothers. Do you hear that? Could Jesus have kept Peter from sinning? Could Peter have been kept from denying Jesus three times? Of course he could have. Jesus knew what Peter would do, knew the turmoil that Peter was going to be in, and Jesus does not stop it. Jesus says, I've prayed for you knowing full well that this is going to happen, and I'm not going to prevent it from happening. But what I'm praying is that after this happens and you are restored, you then would strengthen your brothers who also need to be restored. You see that? God takes a sin, a grievous, heinous sin that cannot be excused, that cannot be denied. And he overrules that sin for the good of Peter and for the good of his people. Here's what I want to say to you. It is very possible that in your journey of faith, you will continue to find... No, no, no. It is certain, not possible. It is certain that in your journey of faith, you will continue to run into conflicts and crises that tempt you to fear and doubt and abandon your trust in the Lord. You will certainly fail... Today, tomorrow, and in the years to come, so long as the Lord gives you breath, you will continue to fail. Here's what I'm telling you, though. In light of Genesis chapter 20 and the rest of Scripture, God is so good and so kind to you that even your failures, he is going to overrule for your good. Listen to what John Newton says. If you're not reading letters from John Newton, you ought to be. We need to make that required reading for Edgewood members. Get the letters of John Newton. Here's what Newton says about the battle and the struggle that Christians wrestle with when it comes to indwelling sin. I'm gonna change the language a little bit because he makes it more of a third person reference. I'm gonna make it more personal by using the first person, okay? Here's what Newton says. When after a long experience of our own deceitful hearts, After repeated proofs of our weakness, willfulness, ingratitude, and insensibility, we find that none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus becomes more and more precious to our souls. Some of the clearest proofs we have of his excellence have been occasioned by the mortifying proofs we have of our own vileness we would not have known so much of him if we had not known so much of ourselves. Do you hear that? That is so good. We would not have known so much of him if we had not known so much of ourselves. Newton's point is this. One of the reasons that God in his grace allows his people to continue to struggle and wrestle with sin is because it makes the grace of God so much more rich and so much more desirable. The more you're confronted with the unshakable reality that you are a weak, pitiful, desperate sinner in need of God's grace, the more you realize that, the greater Jesus looks. So on the one hand, you can say, along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of the saints in Scripture, you can say, I am a miserable sinner. But then you can also say, but I have a great Savior. So don't ever justify your sin. Do grieve over it. Do find a ready sense of shame and embarrassment because of the fact that this sin that you have committed, this doubt, this unbelief, this fear, is itself in some way a poor reflection on the character, the nature, and the promises of God. Do wrestle with that. Do feel that burden and weight. But people, when you feel... When you feel that burden and weight, run to the one who can take it. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened down, and I will give you rest. He's not inviting the perfect to come. He's not inviting the strong to come. He's inviting the weak and miserable to come. And that's good news for us because we're weak and miserable. Last point. God graciously protects Abraham. In light of God's miraculous protection, Abraham's sin, his doubt, his unbelief, his deceit, his lying looks all the more pitiful but of course in looking all the more pitiful it makes God look all the greater. The last thing that we want to take note of is the way that this story resolves itself which is in Abimelech's restoration. When God speaks to Abimelech and intervenes to protect Abraham and Sarah and to keep and preserve the integrity of the promise he tells Abimelech, you must do something in order for this situation to be made right. What must he do? Well, one, you've got to give the guy his wife back. You have to have Abraham pray for you. Wait, wait, wait. Make sure I get this straight, God. He's the guy that created the mess. He's the one who created this whole flaming disaster. And in order for things to be made right for me, who was tricked and deceived, I have to go to him so that he will pray for me You go to Abraham because Abraham is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will be restored. That had to be very awkward. Yeah, Abraham. Listen, I don't know what in the world you were thinking. Yeah, okay, fine, it is what it is. I'm just thankful that God prevented me from doing anything that I was going to regret. Before you go, would you mind praying for me? That I could be restored? By the way, Abraham, you might want to pray for yourself too. Abimelech is going to go to the man that he offended in ignorance, but nevertheless, whether in ignorance or not, taking another man's wife is an offense. He's going to go to the man that he offended and he's going to approach that man and ask that man to intercede for him so that he can be restored. Let me just point out two things. Number one, this along with the passage in Luke that we refer to where Jesus says, Peter, I've prayed for you that when your faith is restored, you would strengthen your brothers. If this is not rock-solid evidence and proof that no sin or failure disqualifies you from being used of God, nothing will convince you." Abraham looks so pitifully weak in chapter 20 that it is almost comical that Abimelech must go to him, hat in hand, asking for Abraham to pray for his healing and his restoration. Peter looks so pathetically weak, scared of a little servant girl in the courtyard denying Christ when he has previously said, I'll go to my death to walk with you, Lord. He looks so pitifully weak, and yet Jesus says, no, Peter, but I've prayed for you so that you will restore your brothers. By the way, your brothers who did not deny me the way that you did, you're going to restore them. You think some of the other disciples disciples weren't looking at Peter a little cross-eyed like, thanks but no thanks, Peter. Maybe I'll go talk with John. In the same way that your lack of faithfulness, your sin does not jeopardize the promises of God to you, it also does not disqualify you from your place in God's kingdom. Listen, you've got a track record, you've got baggage, you've got burdens from past sin, look around. There's baggage as far as the eye can see. What, what do you do then? Do you say that God is not big enough, that God is not gracious enough to use someone like me to affect good for other people, and you just sort of say, therefore, I'm just going to take a, a back row seat? I'll just be a spectator. Or does God intend to take weak, pitiful people like you and me and to say, let me show you how good my grace is. Let me show you how solid and heavy and complete my forgiveness is. This guy here he is guilty of these things, and the list goes on and on, nevertheless, because of my love for him, I keep him close to me, and I use him to accomplish my purposes that's what God wants to do for you in spite of your sin. But the other thing to point out is that there is as we've already as you've already picked up on there is A rich sense of irony that the one who has been offended, Abraham, is the one that Abimelech must approach to find his restoration. In the bigger picture of Scripture, this is, in a dramatically greater way, this is the gospel. We read earlier in the service Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Jesus rides into the city, presents himself as king to his people, and yet he's not accepted. He ends up being executed. He weeps over the city. If only you had known the things that make for peace, what it is that I have for you, but now you've lost it. Jesus is the king, he is the prophet, he is the priest who is offended by our sin. Who do we have to go to to be restored for our offenses? You got to go to the one you offended. That's awkward. Unless... The one that you've offended is so full of grace and mercy that he will forgive the most offensive offenses done to his name and his person. And so, as we consider that this is Palm Sunday, as we look ahead to Easter Sunday next week, we want to say without hesitancy... Without equivocating, the reason that we are able to sing and celebrate is because of the riches of the kindness of God in Christ Jesus, that the one that we offended is the very one who pronounces pardon on us and the one who forgives us and restores us. If you are here this morning and you don't know what it means to find pardon from the one that you have offended... If you don't know yourself, the riches of the kindness and the mercy of God, you can know it today. It's yours for the asking. We're going to conclude the service. I'm going to pray. I'm going to remain near the front as the service closes. Banks, one of our elders, will be at the door to greet you as you're on your way out. If anyone in here has something that they want to talk about, about the passage that we've had this morning, about anything related to the church, I'll be right down here, you'll be able to find me. I'm not running away. You won't have to worry about backing up a line at the door or anything like that. You come down and talk about whatever you want. Let's pray. If you should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that we might fear you. We ask, Father, that as we continue to be confronted, graciously confronted by the convicting work of your Holy Spirit of our sin and our unbelief, of our fear, That our sin and our disobedience would bring into sharp relief the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ who has pardoned people like us. That we would find greater hope, greater security in your promises and in your unfailing purposes. That you are immovable, that you do not change, therefore we are not consumed. Thank you for your spirit who continues to keep us in our faith, who continues to press us forward until we reach that final day when we are presented blameless before you. In the meantime, help us to walk faithfully with great confidence and assurance because you are faithful. And we pray this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Let's stand. in my worry god you are my stillness in my searching god you are my answers in my blindness god you are my vision in my bondage god you are my freedom in my weakness god you are power. You're the reason that I sing, because you're the God of all my days. Each step I take, you make. In my blindness, God, you are my vision. In my bondage, God, you are my freedom all my days. Thanks. You're dismissed. see no other name